Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode number 49. I'm your host, Eric Moore, and today we have a very special guest. Well, Jay, it's always special to have you on, but it's Jay Pestercelli, founder of Zega Financial. Jay, how are you doing today? Doing well, doing well. Thanks for having me on for number 49. Wow, great work. Great work, Eric. <laughs> well, I could have saved to 50, but I suppose we were supposed to be on at 45 and we got busy or I'll, one of I'll us come got back busy. for 50. Yeah, I'll, I'll, oh. we'll, let's figure it out. We'll figure yeah, it out. Yeah, no, I, I like big it. Big 5-0. Yeah, and, and maybe when we do 50, do you do like 50 or do you do like 50.1.2? Do you keep just doing the special episodes? See, I don't know. <laughs> Whenever you bring me back, it'll be 50. By the way, I turn 50 soon. I believe you do too. Uh, don't age me out quite yet. Uh, I got two more close, years, buddy. Two more years. I know. Oh, all right. Well, next, this is uh 2020 is for me. It's getting yeah. close. Wow. Wow. That's something, which by the way, means that we have a lot of experience in the markets. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I, I started, so I started investing, I think it was in high school, high school or, uh, when I bought my first share of stock and, and I remember I bought the share of stock and it was probably like, you know, 10 bucks and it probably cost me like 20 bucks to buy it. I don't know if you remember your first stock you bought. I do. It was GE and I actually paid more than it's worth now. Did you really? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's been some splits, obviously, yada, yada, yada. But still, yes, that was, uh, that was years and years ago. Yes. So speaking of history and historical precedent, you know, you and I did a podcast uh, and we'll link to it in the show notes. I feel like it's a while back now, but I don't remember what it was. And it's this whole idea of, you know, right now we're, we just made another all-time high. And you and I like to give perspective on this because investors sometimes make decisions that are emotional. And, and I hear a lot of talk, I don't know about you, about, hey, the market's at all-time high. Should I wait to invest? Should I sell right now? And I'll have some thoughts on what happens at the lows. But Jay, you and I had talked about how the markets are within an all-time high, 36% of the time. Um, and I, I don't know what, do you know what it, it's been this year? Uh, this year, yes. Uh, it has been within 3% uh, of an all-time high, 54% of the time. So more than half the trading days this year. So there's been 216 days as of this podcast, 116 of them, we have been within 3% of an all-time high. So more than half. I think it goes to this is about you know investor psychology about uh, making rash decisions. You always say, "Have you ever made a really good rash decision?" And probably not. But I mean, are you are you are you seeing now too that a lot of people you talk to are saying, "I don't know about whether I should be invested here." Yeah, well, you know, we we get questions all the time from people saying, "Hey, markets at an all time high is now the time to sell." And our answer is always no, you, the market is normally near an all-time all high, or at least a good percentage of the time near an all-time high. That's not the time to sell. It may be the time to hedge. It may be the time to lock in those gains and tighten up your hedges. You know, we talk a lot about hedging, and I won't go too far down that path right now. But, um, you know, we, we're all taught to believe you got to sell low, buy high. But you could also buy high, sell higher. Right. There's all of those things that kind of link together when it comes to investing over the long term. You want to be invested in the market because market timing is tough. And if you get it wrong, it takes a, a heck of a lot of skill to catch back up. And so we, we say, no, don't sell when you hit an all time high. Uh, continue to ride that wave. Let your bulls run. 
Um, but if you're worried about a pullback, fine, hedge it, lock in the gains, but stay invested. Yeah, and I think that's important because uh, especially, let's say somebody who had a, a lump sum of money, uh, maybe they found out they were in somebody's will or they inherited a bunch of money, you know, an aunt or uncle, they they forgot they had. And they say, well, you know, the market's kind of high right now. I should probably wait. But, you know, we've seen that over time, you know, markets do go up and obviously there's times when they pull back. But as you said, and, and I'll link to some of the episodes you and I did specifically on hedging, if you have a downside floor, it sort of says, hey, I can take a take a look at this market, get invested but it takes away the material downside. And by the way, it probably helps somebody make a more rash decision. Uh, yeah, I, I, uh, <laughs> I'm more, I think the, the phrase I've used before, you know, when you let emotions drive your decision process, you make mistakes, right? When was the last time you said, oh, I wish I was more emotional when I made that decision, right? It's just, it's not, it's not the way you want to be uh, rational or disciplined when it comes to investing. Investing should be boring. You should take the emotion out of it, of course. And that's one of the reasons why we hedge. And, you know, it's it's tough to take it out of the mix, right? There's so much that's important in writing on it. So having a floor in your portfolio, having that protection is important. And I don't, I'm not trying to be a billboard for hedging today. This is, uh, uh, but I, th- I think my, my point is, um, generally speaking, when folks ask, hey, market hit an all-time high, is now the time to sell? Our response is no, you want to let it keep going. What's fascinating about the psychology around highs, um, and kind of spend a little bit more time on this before we transition to the topic of the day, which is how risky concentrated single stocks are and and how we can actually, uh, you know, Zegas developed a little bit of a a formula to address that. But I I actually hearkened back. I wrote an article recently for the Zegas site, and I'll link to that. And, you know, investors, what they say and what they do are sometimes two different things. And we're talking about the markets being at all-time highs. And we hear the refrain, hey, you know, maybe take some off the table, go to cash. It's really fascinating to look back and see what people did in an actual downturn. You know, a lot of people say, well, I don't want to be invested right now because I want to let the market come down. I did a, on the piece that I wrote, uh, it's it's really interesting. They looked at, I, I have a chart on there, of course, we'll link to it, uh, the money market assets as a percentage of all mutual fund assets. And what was really interesting is, you know, you might say, hey, if the market was at a down 50% from its highs, wouldn't that be a good time to buy? And the data actually says something different. What the data shows is when markets were at their absolute lows in March of 2009, and that's when the S&P was, you know, had a 600 and I think it was 666 handle on it. Over 45%, or actually near 45% of mutual fund assets were in money markets. And what that tells us is, and if you go and you look at the, the article, that at the lows, people weren't buying, people were selling, and they sold into the, the last leg down. And so, you know, a lot of times investors, unfortunately, make very panicked decisions, uh, non-disciplined decisions. And you and I always like to say, I mean, Part of what we do is is investments and, and portfolio management. Part of it is sort of managing uh, you know decisions at really crucial time. But I, I thought it was really telling uh, what investors have done is different from what they say they'll do. Yeah, no, I think that's that's your point, right? Which is when you say money market, you mean cash equivalents, right? Hey, they went to cash. Exactly. They sold all their stock. They sold all their mutual funds, and that was 
at the mo- that was at the highest level of when the market was at the lows, right? So it meant people were actually not buying; they were going to cash instead of actually buying when the market was down fifty percent. Um, you know, listen, it's it's not guaranteed that every time the market's down fifty percent, uh, that if you buy there, you'll make money over the long term. But historically, that's always been the case if you waited long enough. Now, with hedging, you don't have to take a full drawdown of fifty percent, of course. But my point is, you're you're right. What people say they want to do uh, and what they actually do turns out to be different. And, you know, when, when you lose the discipline, uh, then, then, uh, then, then that kind of activity can happen. To kind of follow up on, on just the data with, that we saw, not only did they go to cash or cash-like investments at the, you know, they were at most in cash at the lows, which, by the way, would make sense because if you're selling something, you generate cash. And so people were selling near the lows. But you would think that after the market bottom, people would go back to equities or they would sell bonds, uh, which actually, you know, some of them held up, uh, especially government bonds, treasuries, things like that as yields went down. But the data actually says something different. Uh, If you look at uh, from 2000 to 2009, uh, investors flooded bond funds with, with their cash in 2009, not equities. And so to give you, a, I think it was $357 billion went into bonds. In 2008, it was under uh, $50 billion. And then even you know 2007, it was, um, I think, of roughly $125 billion. So think about it this way. People sold near their lows, went to cash, probably waited in cash, and then got back into bonds instead of stocks. And they missed all that recovery in the next couple of years. So it just kind of, it's really fascinating to look at what people do uh, versus what they say. Yep, I agree. Uh, there's a, gosh, I wish I remember who said this, but I remember back in the uh, late 08, early 09 months when things uh, were as nasty as I think you and I have ever seen in our lifetime, right? The Great Recession was pretty bad. I remember somebody had said, it's hard to get hurt falling out of the basement window. And you know, that really sticks like, yeah, okay, fine. Right. You're, it's tough to put, to put money to work into stocks when stocks are dropping, because, you know, you don't know when the bottom is, you might've bought when it was down 30 and you still had 20% more to go. But, you know, the point is, you know, there is a point there, there is a time where the, there are deals like stocks with companies will grow over time. Right. I mean, uh, uh, I know things looked really bad in 08. Gosh, you remember those days in October of 08? It was it was rough, Derek. We would uh, I know we would talk about well the uh, futures have limited down again before the open. Like those were scary days, uh, and it was it's tough to be disciplined to put money to work. But over the long term, if you're thinking of a longer term horizon, you absolutely have to have the discipline of putting more money to work. The beauty is if you're actually hedged, you've taken out that quote unquote, tough part of it. And you're only deciding when am I going to put my uh, avoided losses back to work, right? When am I going to take advantage of the, the hedger's opportunity and actually buy more while the market's lower, right? While the market's at a discount. So if you, if you could always think about it as buying at a discount versus, oh my gosh, how much farther is it going to go down? You want to buy at a discount. We're all, we all like to do that. We all like when something we want goes on sale, we like to buy it. We all want to get a, get a deal, um, the market will give you that opportunity. And it's, it is, it just, it takes time and discipline to be able to follow through with that. Um, uh, and it's, uh, it's hard. It's hard. We, we've, we've, you and I have seen it go uh, the wrong way many times. And all that data that you have found tells us that what we've observed is not 
uh, unusual. It just seems to be investor behavior. Yeah. And I, I love the point about being hedged. And we've talked in the past, and I'll link to this episode about the hedger's opportunity where you avoid the loss, you make hedging profits, and then you can actually go in at the lows. But th- this kind of is a nice transition point to our topic of the week, as we'll call it, which is hedging low cost basis, uh, concentrated stock positions. And what does that mean? It means someone is holding a lot of shares and maybe only one company, maybe only you know one or two companies, and it gets to risk and it gets to, there's a couple things in here that I think we can, we can go back on, uh, you know, why people hold it, why they're reticent to sell. And I'll start off just kind of explaining that, you know, when you look at uh, the, the type of risk, the general risk in the market, there's two types of risk. One is idiosyncratic risk, and that's uh, risk that's relevant to a single stock, like the CEO gets locked up or uh, bad news comes out. You know, we saw Grubhub, what was it last week, go down about 40 or 50% in, in a day after earnings. Uh, but just going to, and then the other type of risk is systematic market risk. And one, you can diversify away pretty well. The other, you can't diversify away, and but you can hedge it, which is what we do. Put some numbers on this, though. Uh, just looking back, you know, I think from 1928 or so, and these are my calculations. Uh, if you look at the risk on the market, and if we use standard deviation as sort of the proxy for risk, we would say a one standard deviation down move based upon historical averages in the market is about you know minus eight percent plus for a single stock based on, uh, you know upon a couple studies. A single stock, a one standard deviation move can be down almost 40%. And other studies show it could be higher. And by the way, that means that at a two standard deviation move down, the market would be about down 27%. A single stock would be down almost 58%. So we know that single stocks have much greater risk. Um, and you know we'll kind of get into some of the aspects of that. Uh, but I mean, the question might be, hey, you know, Jay, we can see that diversification, if you wanted a, sort of the plain vanilla approach, diversification, you can get rid of some of the, uh, the risk. But, you know, talk about that. But also, you know, why, would, why do people wind up with concentrated stock positions? Well, that's, yeah, there's a lot of reasons of why, why it happens. We've, uh, we've seen it, whether it was somebody inherited stock, right? It was left to them from a, from a relative. Uh, we have clients where, hey, my grandfather left me this stock and I'm going to hold it because that's what he gave me. And that's fine. Or maybe somebody worked at a company and part of their compensation was stock. Uh, that happens all the time. That ha- actually happens more frequently than somebody leaving just shares to somebody. But the, the, uh, it, it's, uh, the, the other thing that I've seen, sorry, the third one that I've seen is where people have been uh, paid out for their company in other company stock. So, you know, we've had a few scenarios where so a client uh, founded a business and was bought out by a publicly traded company and their payment was made in company stock. So however you end up getting this uh, uh, concentrated stock, uh, it, it, it matters from a cost perspective and a tax perspective. And we'll, we'll want to make sure we don't put anybody to sleep and start quoting tax code, Derek. But I think uh, it, it, it matters a little bit how you got it, but it's more important to manage what you do with it once you do have it. Your point about the volatility, or I'll say the risk of single stock, uh, is 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 definitely well uh, uh, well placed because you know an individual anything can happen 
with an individual stock. You know, you and I worked for a publicly traded company when we worked at TD Ameritrade. And, you know, I knew pretty much everything that was going on in that firm, but I couldn't tell you what our stock was going to do. And, uh, you know, the, those, let's just take the online brokers as an example. Just recently, when Schwab cut commissions to zero, uh, you know, stocks like TD Ameritrade and E-Trade took a very large hit when that happened. And when I say a large hit, I mean, you know, dropped from $45 a share to $30 a share, right? It's a 30% hit in the period of two or three days, right? And it had nothing to do with how well run that company was, right? It had nothing to do with how clean their balance sheet was, had nothing to do with growth, which by the way, all those firms are growing. It had to do with some idiosyncratic risk, which is what you pointed out a second ago, that is uncontrollable. And if all of your money was in TD Ameritrade stock. Everything still could have been great at the company. And you took a 30% hit in your value in a single day or a single week. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting. And, and you, you alluded to it with the tax thing. We won't, as you said, uh, people want to be awake. Maybe they're driving. Uh, we don't want any accidents. <laughs> We're going right? to avoid accidents. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sorry accidents if there's any accountants bad. listening. My apologies. Yeah, Your life no, is exciting. Your, your, work, your you. work is very important. <laughs> But one of the reasons why somebody would hold this stock too, and, and okay, so people, a lot of people, some people realize they they don't have this type of risk, this concentrated risk. Um, other people, and by the way, I'll, I'll kind of tease it now. Jay, you and I have been working on a, an extensive white paper that's going to be coming out soon. And we actually go pretty deep into some of this stuff and also the solutions. Uh, so everyone should look for that coming out. But it would... In doing the research, one of the things you realized was some people don't want to sell because they say, look, let's say I was given the stock and, and my cost basis is zero and the stock's a $100 stock. And if I sell it, I'm going to take this huge tax hit. So why sell it? Don't I have an embedded hedge already? Um, I think there's, you know, we have some ideas on that. But the other thing I'll just say is, you know, you gave a great example. I think it was 30, 35% you mentioned on on the online brokers, some of them that day. When we were writing this paper uh, that will be out soon, it was sort of, you know, I I was looking for examples of single day, meaning it closes one day and it opens the next, those types of examples of extreme moves. And you know what? It was so easy to find these. Uh, I, I mean, I'll give you a couple. February of 2016, LinkedIn down 43.5%. Of course, LinkedIn was later purchased by Microsoft. Crocs in 07, down 36%. 2U Inc., uh, I don't know about this company. I'm sure they're a fine fine group. They were down 65% in July of uh, 2019. Stamps.com, uh, I think it's SMTP. That must be Stamps, down 50%. And then Jay, I mean, even we mentioned the Grubhub. You and I just, uh, we published an article on McDonald's and Grubhub. McDonald's is down 15% from the high, 10%. Uh, you know, night uh, day to day to uh, to morning, and Grubhub down fifty percent. It happens all the time. You know, you you actually, Derek, in the in the in the study, and and you did wonderful work on the research on this. Um, I I'm going to put you on the spot. Uh, let's talk about Apple for a second, right? You know, I think uh, I think you found some really interesting data that even Apple, right, the darling of the markets these days, was. Would provide a would 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 add a lot of volatility to somebody's worth, right? Yeah, no, and give you a couple points on Apple. I think we ran some data from 1981 to 2018, 
And in that period, the, the compounded annual growth rate was over 15%. That is really, really good. Anybody would be. And by the way, if you bought Apple in 1981, good for you, because not every, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's sort of easy to go back and, and do revisionist history and say you would have bought it back then. You probably wouldn't. You know, it was really after the iPhone. But what we did was, and, and everyone will see this in the study, we looked at the down years for Apple. And, you know, off the top of my head, I, I think it was uh, in 2000, nearly 75, maybe I'm a little higher on that, but it was over 70% uh, loss in 2000 on their stock, that type of drawdown. 2008 was nearly 57%. And you might say, well, those were rough years, but 93 wasn't a rough year in the market and they, they have their, their stock price. And even with all that, they still returned 15%. So, I mean, st that stock did unbelievably well. But imagine if you had all your wealth tied up in one company and you reduced your wealth by 70%. Uh, one, would you have been able to ha hold on? But two, that's a significant drawdown. That's a lot of volatility. Yep, that was that's it. And so I think I, I found that to be so... Uh... So, so in such an impact when you say even Apple uh, can have this kind of volatility. And I'll take to 2018, it was a pretty volatile stock, even now in, you know, kind of, I'll call it modern or, you know, post Great Recession history. Um, you know, these individual stocks just add a ton of risk, ton of, ton of uh, volatility to somebody's portfolio. So, so maybe, Derek, let's transition now that hopefully we've explained that just naturally every stock is susceptible to this. I, and the list goes on and on. The Dow stocks, you could, we could just rattle off. I mean, Boeing, I mean, come on, right? I mean, I can't, we can't get enough information about Boeing. So I, I hopefully, you know, no matter how much you believe in your individual stock that you have, they will go through turbulent times. History tells us this. So what do you do, Derek? Let's pass it on here. What, like, what do you do when you have this you know, you're stuck in the stock, whether it's for a tax reason or or you have uh, uh, an attachment because it was left to you by somebody and, you know, and there's a reason why you want to hold on to it. So what, what do you do? Because you can't always just diversify away or hedge. Uh, you take your statement, you put it in a drawer and you go out for long walks. <laughs> no. Right. Uh, the, 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 the coma method of trading, put on a trade and then go away or the vacation yeah. method. Yes. Yes. Well, you know, and uh, I'll kind of start us off and then you, you can kind of run with it from where I, I leave it. But yeah, look, we hedge. We, we've been talking about hedging for quite a while. It's what our primary, uh, you know, for the majority of somebody's wealth, if they were coming to us, we would say, uh, let's get you invested in the markets, but do so with either a buffer to the downside or put in a, you know, sort of an absolute floor uh, to the downside. And so generally we do it on, uh, broad indexes, and there's there's reasons for that because we we talked about you don't have that idiosyncratic risk with indexes. But somebody comes to us and says, "Look, I have X number of shares, quite a bit of shares. Um, I used to work for this company. There, there's a couple things that really come to mind. And number one is we always ask, like, what is it that you want? You know, do do you want to diversify, and you're just worried about taxes, or do you, do you not want to diversify because you really like the company?" And some people do that. So the first thing is, you know, we figure out, let's, let's use a hedge and we can do a direct hedge using options on the companies themselves. And we can do two things. Number one is you can put a floor in the company uh, and it depends on, on the corporation and the volatility. 
But the other thing, Jay, is we can actually use something like a, a covered call, which is not a hedge. And I did a, an episode last week of why covered calls are not a hedge. Uh, but we could actually sort of structure or schedule uh, a little bit of a, you know, an exit strategy for how many shares per year or over months. So um, we can hedge the downside. We can also structure exits uh, to the upside. So I'll kind of get you started, Jay, and I'll let you let you go from there. Yeah, no, that's that's great. That's uh, that's that's right. You can either protect it if you're going to hold it for a long period of time. You and or if you plan on selling over time, you could use uh, options to help structure those exits and time those exits and get paid a little bit while you're waiting to do so. Um, you know, you we. I'm gonna I'm gonna backtrack a minute, and this is uh, this is the challenge of us just uh, hitting hitting the microphone and talking. But you know, you, you did touch on the point of um, you know sometimes it just might be better to pay the tax bill. Like that's okay, right? Like it's we all have to pay taxes. We live in America. Depending on who gets elected <laughs> next year, we may pay more. Um, but I think uh, sometimes if you have long-term capital gains embedded, like you've held the stock for over a year, um, you're going to get a, you know, the, 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 the current tax code gives you a little bit of a benefit of not charging you your income rate, but more whether it's 15 or 20, 23%. But let's say you're paying 20% in taxes. You know, is it better to pay the 20% in taxes or still hold the stock and take a 25% loss? Right. So, you know, it's one of those things that sometimes it's better to get the diversification done or get into a broader portfolio, pay some of the taxes, uh, structure those taxes over time, structure your exits um, and and uh, and avoid all of that exposure. Because you, we just gave a bunch of examples where stocks drop more than 20 percent in a very short period of time, let alone a year long period of time. So anyway, so I think, you know, when you, when so. I think I'm saying on two things. One, we like to hedge it. Two, let's structure the exits. And it's okay to pay some taxes on those gains. Getting it into getting that cash away from a single stock, getting away from that single stock risk is important. Um, you hedge to offset the period of time that you have to be exposed for one reason or another. But the ultimate goal for us is we like to, you know, get you into a broader diversified portfolio, get exposed to the markets. You know, it's most uh, stocks over time, Apple's an exception, of course, things like Google, Microsoft are exceptions. Most stocks over time don't beat the S&P 500. We like the S&P 500. And it's less risky from a volatility perspective, um, right? The swings in 500 stocks are less than the swings in a single stock. And so we want to move people into portfolios that have exposure to indexes like the S&P 500, get away from single stocks, but you have to do it in a way uh, that makes sense. And so uh, you know, the, when when we hedge, when we add protection, um, you know, we we we've we've said this before. There's a cost. There's a cost to insurance. We all understand insurance in this country uh, very well. Uh, again, we may be even more <laughs> more more uh, informed about health insurance, for example, come uh, post election. I feel like we've we got a lesson eight years ago, and now we're going to get another one. But uh, I think all of this goes into, hey, for a fee, for some of a fee, we can lock in gains or we can prevent losses. We can help protect while you're implementing a plan that was designed to to, to create a broader growth uh, uh, exposure over time versus just, you know, hoping that one stock continues to go up and it never gets hit with any kind of one-off items. 
So I went off there a little bit, Derek. You know me. Sorry, uh, uh, that that happens from time to time. But I think the I think the point was made where hedge it, plan it, use get some income while you're waiting. Um, but uh, you know, evaluate what the impact is of moving away. By the way, as I was about to hand it off to you, I'll say something else. I don't think anybody has a problem. I know you and I don't have a problem, Derek, with keeping some stock in individual names, right? I mean, it's fine. Like, it's okay. It is a way to create some outperformance if you get it right. Um, uh, first off, that's hard to do. But if you do, that's great. But having, you know, 50%, 70 80% of your net worth in one single stock, just you're rolling the dice. Well, you brought up a couple of things that are important. Uh, you brought up a lot that's important. <laughs> Everything you say that's important, John. <laughs> Thanks, uh, but, but one of the, <laughs> I realized as I started to say it, it seems to like validate your last point and invalidate the others. That's not the case. But uh, I think it's it's important to mention too. You know, let's say somebody has a, a concentrated position. Uh, they might sell. I mean, we, we've talked to people about, hey, sell a third, sell a half. But uh, not only do you, you reduce the risk, you also reduce the tax hit. And you can hedge the rest and sort of stretch it out over time. I think the majority of people who, you know, and we see this with advisors that we work with who, you know, talk to clients and they tell clients, hey, you know, you, you really should get diversified. And, and I look at this as I went in to get my oil change recently at Walmart. And it's kind of the good, better, best model. It's like you can do this motor oil and I don't know what other services you got. Uh, or you could do this one and it's better, or this is the best one. I mean, the best one's probably to end up in a diversified portfolio that is hedged or buffered. But I think, uh, you know, a lot of advisors too, they talk to uh, prospective clients and, you know, they always say, look, you know, you really should diversify. And the client might even say, yeah, I know, but I'm, I'm not going to. It's sort of the the unsolvable problem. So, uh, but I I think your point about, hey, you know, selling some, hedging the rest, but then having a structured exit uh, is important. I think the other thing that's interesting too is, you know, we've seen cases uh, where, where there is the opportunity where if we're hedging a single stock and it does something that the holder doesn't want, meaning it goes down quite a bit, there's an opportunity to use the hedging profits and take those profits and wind up investing then in, in a hedge diversified portfolio. So it's sort of the other way of doing it as opposed to, you know, selling calls, uh, structured calls above the market to get called away. I mean, that, that's the thing too that can help out someone taking those hedging profits. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, you know, the 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 market will not always be timed properly to your schedule, and so you know, if you happen to have hedged your, uh, if you had smartly hedged your concentrated position, and a catastrophic event, a really bad event happened for that firm or that that company, uh, you know, what do you do once your hedge is making money, right? And I think where you're leaning here, Derek, is, well, you have two choices. One, you could decide to sell, you know, the stock where your hedge was. Let's say you had a $100 stock and you built your hedge. So you, you know, you always have the right to sell it at 80 bucks. Um, you could always choose to exercise that hedge and say, well, I'm going to sell it at 80 bucks, but maybe you don't want to yet. Maybe you already sold your stock for that year, but your hedge, let's say the stock went down to 50, your hedge in that scenario is going to be worth at least $30 in and of itself. It has an intrinsic value, just a value of 30 bucks. Well, you want to take advantage of that and it gives you a way to, you know, invest the profits from your hedge, right? Take the profits from your hedge and start to create that, uh, other portfolio, the 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 end game, the end target of building your 
uh, uh, diversified hedged, you know, buffered or, or hedged uh, product. And I think um, we've seen that happen um, multiple times. You know, when we build hedges, Derek, typically, you know, you and I, when we talk about this, right, it's expensive to, you know, 100% hedge anything. It's like, you know, having a zero deductible in your car insurance or your health insurance. That's expensive. And that could, over time, be prohibited in and of itself. You don't want the cost of the insurance to cost you more than you would have lost <laughs> if the stock dropped, right? So, you know, being mindful of that, typically we put hedges on that pay off one out of four years, right? Uh, one out of four, one out of five years. And those are usually pretty affordable, cost a couple percent a year. And there's lots of ways that we offset those costs. But just generally speaking, you know, we'll use those and you don't know uh, how often that those hedges are going to go in the money. And so, you know, you have to have a plan on what to do once your hedges are profitable if and when the market drops or your individual stock drops, uh, you definitely need to have a plan for what you're going to do with that. Uh, and of course, you know, circumstances will vary, but, you know, it definitely is an interesting opportunity to take the profits on those hedges and diversify. By the way, you're probably then diversifying away and buying at the low in a natural state, right? And sometimes stocks are dropping along with the rest of the market. So you're actually investing while the rest of the market is down anyway. You're kind of doing what we talked about earlier um, about, you know, hey, you know, you want to buy at the low and, you know, let those let those let it run, let the market run. Right. That discipline of taking profits on uh, hedges and then reinvesting them while the market is down is is a great is a great investing strategy. Yeah, no, that's that's a really important point. And uh, that's right, because of the market's undergoing some sort of a systematic risk event. Uh, naturally, as your stock goes down, the market's going down, too. One thing I'll mention too is, you know, a lot of times, and I did an episode last week about how covered calls are not a great hedge. And the point I made there, Jay, was sometimes, you know, let's use the market, the the SPY ETF. Let's say you bring in a dollar from selling a covered call and the SPY is trading, you know, at $305. Great. You avoided the first dollar. Like covered calls are not a hedge. But I'll just mention that uh, covered calls, and we probably don't have time on on this episode to go through sort of the uh, uh, you know the mechanics of it. They're re- it seems so straightforward, but they're really involved. Meaning, how not to get called away because of dividends? When do you roll it? When do you not roll it? How far away do you go? How many standard deviations? It's uh, it's one of those things. It's really easy to do, and it's one of the first things that option traders learn to do. But it, it in its, in its execution, um, we actually probably spend a lot of time, more time on that uh, than a lot of other things. I don't know if you want to comment really quickly on that, Jay, but uh, or we could just have people read the, the white paper when it comes back. No, no, you're right. And you know, most people go, I, I know what a cover call is. I have the stock, I sell a call, I get a little premium, and I'm obligated to sell it if the stock goes up. Great, fine, I understand it. But that's the entry. And by the way, uh, the uh, the risk associated with uh, a cover call is no more than just holding the stock, right? It's, it's, you're really, you know, you mentioned, you know, maybe it's slightly less risk because you're generating some premium, but it's, it's one of those things that um, the approval level, the options approval level is very low because it doesn't take a lot of risk, but the actual management of that position uh, is, is definitely, uh, uh, you will have choices to make when stocks move, you know, do you ever close out that covered call? Do you ever roll it up and out? Those are the things that we talk about. Um, you know, when you're, what we have found, uh, I'll give you a great example that let's say you had sold a covered call over long stock and that was helping to say fund your hedge, right? Um, 
if you, you know, most people say, well, it's gone up. I, I don't want to sell it now. What do I do? I don't want to be locked in. And guess what? There are ways you, listen, you have some obligations. I'm not saying you could avoid that, but there are ways to manage through that to then capture a good chunk of the market or the stock appreciation, even though you already sold a covered call, right? You buy back that cover call, sell another one. And all you need is for the stock just to calm down a little bit. Usually the stock has run pretty uh, uh, pretty quickly up for a covered call to get into trouble uh, uh, and for in the way that we do it. And so if that happens, you just need it to calm down a little bit. Time is on your side or some more premium and just, you know, move your strike up, go out in expiration a little bit, you know, things like that. Tactics of, uh, associated with managing a covered call position are a lot more in depth than the, uh, uh, than the skill needed to enter one. Maybe I'll, I'll say it that way. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'll just mention too, that, uh, maybe we'll do this in a, an, another episode, uh, but we've talked about single stocks. Uh, if somebody had a collection of stocks, we could also do something called portfolio hedging. And that's where you're using instruments, broad market instruments, to cut the systematic market risk on a portfolio. But that's a little involved, and we'll probably save that for another day. Uh, but lastly, Jay, I just wanted to talk about you know, someone with concentrated stock. Uh, obviously, we can hedge it. We can generate income on it. We talked about covered calls, structured exits. But that is collateral. That's an asset that somebody can use. And I always go back of, you know, somebody could take a loan against the value of their portfolio, and that gets into a whole other thing. Uh, But we also can use one of our, I'll call it flagship strategies, which is high probability options uh, or selling high probability options, uh, you know, spreads really far away from the market. And we can actually use the, the stock as a little bit of collateral on a portion of it. Um, so kind of as we, before we wrap up, I think it's, I think it's kind of an important thing to bring up. Yeah, I, um, it's, it's a really important thing to bring up and I'm going to, I'm going to address the advisors in our audience here, Derek, for a moment. You know, there's not a single one of us where a client hasn't walked in, uh, and said, hi, uh, yep. Like everything you're doing, but I've got this, you know, $5 million or $3 million sitting in Exxon or FedEx or Berkshire Hathaway. Um, can I do anything? And most of the time, you know, when, when the advisor takes a look at it financially, they say, listen, yeah, we could, but it's going to cost you a lot, whether it's in taxes or whatever the situation is, there's not a lot they could do with it. But now if you think about that, you can hedge it so you can protect the client. You can use it as collateral to sell calls for income, or you could use it as collateral to run a hypo strategy over the top of it. Now, as an advisor, you are providing a benefit to your client. You're protecting them, so you're helping preserve their wealth. And then you're also generating income at the same time. If you're not using options, when that client walks in the door, they walk out, and those are assets that you're not able to provide a service on. You're not able to help that prospect or that client. Uh, uh, And that's really why we're in the business, right? We're here to uh, financially assist. And so, you know, using options, it gives you those, those tools. So for the advisors in the audience, you know, definitely think through that and the opportunities uh, to help your community and your prospects and your clients that you can apply when you're using options uh, on top of a concentrated position. So I'll bounce that back to you, Derek, but I just feel like it's one of those things that um, I think when you start to expand and use uh, uh, a little more sophisticated tools like options or use guys like us to help you out, you end up actually, uh, you're able to do your job better. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think it's uh, uh, the ability to, let's say, hedge your stock, still get the dividend, 
and then generate additional income on top of it. Uh, it's, it's a, it gets pretty interesting and it's just stuff that generally people don't see. Um, well, Jay, I think we've, uh, we've covered a, a lot here today and, uh, we'll tease again. You'll, you'll be hearing more from us once we, uh, Jay and I publish our, our white paper about single stock risk and concentrated hedging and generated income. So look at that. Uh, of course, Jay and I will be back next week talking about gamma scalping strategies. Yeah, yeah right. I think I'd rather talk about no. the giants and talk about that. Ah, uh, there, there it is. <laughs> I got it in. Gosh, we need help this year. Can I hedge the giants, Derek? What can I do uh, to hedge the giants? I don't know. I mean, it, it's uh, do do we have the quarterback now? And in, in Daniel Jones, I don't know. Ugh. It's uh, it's rough. You know, it. <laughs> that's the thing, though. You know, the draft is is almost like all right. So here's an analogy for you. Like when you draft a a franchise quarterback. It's almost like taking single stock risk because <laughs> if you get it wrong, if you get it wrong, then you wasted the draft pick, you set your franchise back, and you still don't have the the quarterback that you need. So um, I guess the way to hedge it is get a good line and a good running back. And you look at Barkley, we'll take that. That's a good hedge. That's a good hedge against yeah. Jones. Well, people have won the Super Bowl with uh, quarterbacks who were just game managers. I mean, you look at the 85 Bears with Jim McMahon. Uh, on, I won't mention the team that beat the Giants in the Super Bowl with a, Never happened. a quarterback. Yeah, I, I don't I don't think I watched that year. But yeah, I mean it's it's and it's it really goes to diversification, right? Like if you <laughs> if you build up the line, if you build up the defense, if now you're diversifying as opposed to putting all your eggs in one basket and there's no hedge against drafting a quarterback who is a bust. Uh, so it remains to be seen, but I like that Jay. We made that up on the fly. There you go, on the fly. That. All right, Jay, thanks for coming on with everyone else. Uh, rather than rate, review, and star us, uh, go ahead and share this with someone if you can, uh, if you enjoy this content. And by the way, reach out to us, uh, either myself or Jay, with ideas for a future episode. Jay, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks again, and congrats on 49 uh, episodes, Derek. That's right. Thanks, Jay. All right, everyone, we'll talk to you soon.